Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. The title of my message today is The Choice, and we make a thousand of them every day, and from the time we get up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night. But there's one overarching choice that's going to guide and inform every other small choice that we make. A lot of these choices that we saw up there, as I was watching the one with the uh, kitchen that was a disaster, uh, as one who has young children in my home now, I was thinking, I'm not sure that I would choose to understand. I might come completely unglued. But, uh, but again, there's, there's a greater choice involved. There's a greater choice that we make that informs all of these other churches, other choices. In Acts chapter 13 in verse 1, <clears throat> it says, Now the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Luke shares with us the diversity of the leadership and the church at Antioch from North Africans to a Jew who was raised in the royal Herodian household. And Luke shares that these individuals, this diversity of leadership, led the church in fasting and worship of God. And as they were worshiping, God revealed his will through the Holy Spirit. God commissioned Barnabas and Saul for their missionary work. The church fasted and prayed and then confirmed what the Holy Spirit had led them to, and then they laid hands on and set Paul and Barnabas apart. The first thing that I want you to see in, in this passage right here as we begin is that God is the one that commissions those whom he sends. We don't pick and choose those things that we want to do. God's the one that commissions the work. And take you all the way back to, to Ephesians and uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where the apostle Paul wrote, for it's by grace that we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. We don't do the saving. God does the saving. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. We don't bring anything to the table to make ourselves worthy to God. We don't work our way into his good graces. It's not of works so that no one will have opportunity to boast about the thing that only God could do. We are his workmanship created unto good works. We're created for the good works that he has created for us to do in advance even of our salvation. You see, it's God, the God who saves, it's God who commissions, it's God who appoints, and it's God who prepares the good works in which individuals engage. So again, it's, it's all a work of God, but we choose our response to that which God sets before us. One other observation, the Holy Spirit in these first three verses, as Luke talks about them being set aside, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that he had commissioned, he didn't give the details of the work to which he was calling them. The Holy Spirit told the church, just set them apart to the work that I've called them. They'll know the work. I'll explain the work. I'll reveal the work to them, but no great detail about where they were going to go, how they were going to embrace this work, how they were going to accomplish it. No strategy for seeing it accomplished laid out. God wants to know if we are willing, are you willing to embrace God's will no matter what it might be? If God calls you, and he does, to be a part of his work, 
Does your willingness to take part in that work, is it a function of what the work is, what God's going to call you to? If God were to call you today and say, will you follow me? Will you do the thing that I set in front of you? Would you say yes? Not knowing what it is exactly he's going to set in front of you. You could say yes, and he could say, okay, I want you to pack up everything and move to some foreign land and be a voice for me there. You could say yes, and he could say, okay, I want you to take in a child that has no home. You could say yes, and he could say, okay, I want you to go into the prison setting and be a voice for me to individuals that need to hear where others are unwilling to go. He could call you to do some of these very things that we saw up here. The question is, is will you say yes? Will you choose to say yes to Jesus, not knowing the details of what he might call you to? Because that indeed is the path that he calls us to. That's, what, that's Just follow me. doesn't tell us where he's going. In verse 4, Barnabas and Saul head to Cyprus. They've been set apart for this work. So God directs them down to Cyprus where they proclaim the good news of Jesus in the Jewish synagogues there. This will be Paul's pattern throughout his work in, in, uh, in Asia Minor, Greece, and all the way to Rome. When they arrived in the city of Paphos, they met a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, a name which means literally the son of salvation. But he was anything but a son of salvation. He was a false prophet. He was also known as Elimus Magus. He was a magician. That's what the, the, the word magus means. He didn't lead people to salvation. He led people away from salvation. So when Paul begins to share of Jesus with the governor of Cyprus, Elimus disputes with Paul. Paul's not telling the truth, but Paul would have none of it. In Acts 13.10, he says to Elimus, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time and not even able to see the light of the sun. And it happened just as Peter said, Elimus needed others to lead him around by the hand. Verse 12 says, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He heard the arguments. He saw with his eyes that Elimus could not prevail against Paul in his testimony of Jesus, and he put his faith and trust in Jesus. Once again, two people hear the same message. One stands in defiant opposition, unwilling to surrender, to submit, or even to acknowledge Jesus. The other person convinced fully of who Jesus is. This is what God does. He confronts us. He reveals truth to us. He provides opportunity for us to respond. And then we have a choice to make. Elimus's pride and arrogance prevented him from saying yes to Jesus. However, the governor of Cyprus, the proconsul, chose to humble himself before God and put his faith and trust in Christ. This is the essence of of Joshua's challenge to the nation of Israel. In Joshua 24, 15, after God had delivered the people from Egyptian bondage, after he had delivered the promised land into their hands, after God had proven himself mighty and powerful, merciful and faithful again and again and again, Joshua said to the nation, 
Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is the question with which the revelation of Jesus challenges us. In light of how God has revealed himself, who will you serve? By revelation through the words of Paul, God declared to Elimus and to the governor of Paphos, choose whom you'll serve. One chose for God, the other chose to live in his old ways. God says the same to us today. Choose, choose whom you will serve. And this, this choice, this choosing of, of whom we serve is the thing that's going to influence, enlighten, impact, and, and animate, and inform every other choice that we make through the course of our lives. In verse 13, and this is the, the primary section of this chapter, chapter 13, that I want to spend some time on this morning. In verse 13, Paul and Barnabas sail back to the, to the mainland. They sail to the south coast of Asia Minor, and they travel through the mountains to a city called Pisidian Antioch, where they, again, go to the synagogue first, to the Jews, and while there, they're invited to share with the Jews who have gathered. They recognize that Paul is a Jewish rabbi, and so they welcome the visiting rabbi and give him an opportunity to speak. Paul shares with his listeners of God's sovereignty and choosing Israel from his revelation to Abraham, the father of the nation, to their release from bondage in Egypt, to their deliverance through the wilderness and their victory in the promised land. And then he speaks of God's provision of a king when they requested one, King Saul first, and then King David. And then in verse 23, Paul says this, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. In verse 26, he says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Paul proclaims Jesus is God's promised Messiah, and he references the prophetic words of the Old Testament as proof that that's the case. And then in verse 36, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. In Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, King David wrote this. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. 
They're corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, and everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. As David wrote that, he understood experientially the words that he wrote. David had betrayed his friends. David was unfaithful in relationship. David had used Bathsheba for his own pleasure. David murdered his faithful and his loyal soldier and servant Uriah to hide his own sin. As David wrote these words, he knew in his heart that he was not righteous, that he was not one who had done right, that he had rejected God, he had made choice. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, David's son King Solomon wrote, Indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sinned. Solomon knew this principle experientially as well. As his power grew, he sought after everything but intimacy with God. Isaiah the prophet said, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah included himself in this this corporate we, we all have gone astray. And the way that we go astray is by turning to our own way, turning to those things that we want to do, turning to those ways that we think are right ways, turning to those ways that we think are going to bring us fulfillment, even if it's only in the moment. This is what David did. In his youth, he knew God. He sought to honor God. His heart, the scriptures tell us, was after God, but he became complacent. And he sought his fullness and his satisfaction and comfort and leisure and food and wine and in sex. He did not continue to pursue the way of God that he had pursued as a young man. He turned to his own way. He turned to the ways of the world. Solomon did the same. He was humble before God when he was crowned, seeking God for wisdom to to lead the nation. He knew he didn't have the capacity. He knew he would fail in that task without God's guidance. As his power and his fame grew, Solomon turned from reliance on God to worldly standards of success, building and buying and acquiring all of the things that the world considers to be of value. Solomon, too, sought satisfaction and sensual pleasures with a, with a harem that was unrivaled by, by any other. And, and all of these things failed him miserably as he writes in Ecclesiastes. It was like chasing after the wind. It was like trying to grab hold of the wind. Impossible to do. Unfortunately, many today follow the path that David and Solomon pursued. They, they start well. They profess a love of God in their youth, but along the way, they get sidetracked. The, the shiny objects of the world catch their attention, and the pursuit of God takes a back seat. I can assure you that David and Solomon continued to take sacrifice to the temple on a weekly basis. They continued to honor the priestly order. They continued to listen to the reading of the law, the Torah, but 
It was just ceremony to them as they, they moved into these years of complacency. It was just an activity like one today who goes to church every Sunday but pursues their satisfaction with the things of the world the rest of the week. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of the righteous standard of God. Paul understood clearly, he was acutely aware of his own sin. He had aligned himself with those who murdered Jesus. He had approved of and led others in the imprisonment and murder of Jesus' disciples. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He wanted to destroy the movement that Jesus had begun. And, but then he came face to face with Jesus as he was traveling to Damascus, and he realized that he had lived his life rejecting God, going his own way, the way that he thought was right. Paul realized that he too was a sinner. So here in Acts, Paul preaches to the Jews at Pisidian Antioch, and he shares with them the good news. The Messiah that God promised has come through Jesus, the forgiveness of these sins that all of us have committed is available. In fact, everyone who believes in Jesus is set free from every sin. No matter how great the sin, no matter how grievous the sin, no matter how shameful the sin, everyone who believes in Jesus can be forgiven. They can be set free from every sin. Something Paul points out that was not possible keeping the law of Moses, something that is not possible by keeping any set of rules. Forgiveness of sins is only possible through Jesus. And forgiveness of sins is available to all who choose Jesus. In verse 40, Paul issues a warning. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, where the prophet Habakkuk warns the nation that if they continue to reject God, to go their own way, that he would send other nations, the Babylonians, to defeat and enslave them. God declared to the people that he would punish their rejection of him. There were severe consequences, eternal consequences to rejecting God. Beware, Paul says, you who doubt and mock God by the way that you live your lives, you will perish. If you choose to go your own way, if you choose to live apart from Jesus, all that is left for you is ruin. Ask David. When he chose to go his own way, when he chose to live apart from God, when he chose to reside in that complacency, when he chose to find his satisfaction in the things that the world offered him, he experienced loss, he experienced ruin, he suffered God's severe punishment, but then he turned back to God. It's again a choice. We live in a world where most people do not believe in Jesus. There, there are many who believe a lot of things about Jesus. They do not deny that Jesus lived. My, my word, even Muslims revere Jesus is one of their greatest prophets. Some even name their children after Jesus. You go into Muslim countries and you'll find children and, and grown-ups named, named Isa, but they don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They are disciples of Mohammed. Their God is Allah, and, and the, the God of Mohammed. That's the God that they worship. So too, many others 
believed Jesus lived, just like Muslims, even that he came representing God, just like Muslims. But they do not believe that his death on the cross was a, a payment for their sin. They don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then there are many who say they do believe in Jesus, but their lives and their view of the world do not align with discipleship. Some of George Barna, a, a, a Christian pollster here in the United States, some of George Barna's most recent study results indicate that only 17% of American Christians have a worldview that aligns with the Word of God. When asked by Barna's pollsters, large percentages of Christians, ones who said they were Christians, agreed with statements like, there is no way to determine the meaning and purpose of life. And a person's life is valuable only if society says it is valuable. And meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. Finally, what is morally right and wrong depends on what a person believes. For the follower of Jesus Christ, these questions are not in doubt. Our meaning and purpose in life is found in relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave human life value when he created it in his image. And Jesus Christ underscored the value of life when he died on the cross. Working hard to earn as much as possible will never fulfill. Ask Solomon. Pursuing life to earn as much as possible only distracts from the pursuit of God. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And what is morally right and wrong has nothing to do with what a person believes and everything to do with what God has declared. We cannot embrace the beliefs of this world without sinning against God. Paul preached to Jews who had a view of the world that excluded Jesus. He, he appealed to them to seek forgiveness of this sin. He warned them that loss and ruin, potentially eternal loss and ruin, ruin would result from their rejection. And the same is true today. Verse 42 tells us that when Paul had preached in Pisidian Antioch on that first Sabbath, the message he shared was well-received. In fact, after the service, Paul and Barnabas talked with many of the Jews who had come and, and some Gentile converts to, to Judaism as well. And apparently some put their faith in Jesus that day, and Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. And continuing in the grace of God was important to Paul and Barnabas, not because continuing saves a person. We are saved by grace, but our continuing to to live in the midst of that, that grace, continuing to follow Jesus is proof of salvation. Finishing in the faith is the proof that faith was sure, that faith was real, 
When someone says that they're a follower of Jesus, when someone makes a profession of their faith in Jesus and is baptized and, and even lives some portion of their life in the church, but then they, they stumble and they, they fall and, the, and they never return. You're always left wondering, did that person really have faith in God? And only God knows that. We, we can't know that. Only God can know the heart of an individual. But for Paul, as he urged them to continue in grace, and he, Paul knew that that continuing in grace was proof that the Holy Spirit was continuing to work in their lives. It was proof that their salvation was real. Paul and Barnabas were invited to speak again the following Sabbath, but when they gathered the next week, the, the synagogue was overwhelmed with Gentiles. Paul's message was, was compelling. The power of the Spirit of God is, is compelling. Word spread of the message of forgiveness for everyone, the Gentiles included, and, and the Gentiles decided they wanted in. And so a week later, great majority of them showed up. But the Jews, and in particular as you read through the passage to the end, the, the Jewish leaders were jealous. They began to dispute Paul's message. They verbally accused and abused Paul, the Scripture tells us. Verse 46 says, then, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The message and the power of the Holy Spirit are compelling, but not so compelling that some don't say no. On this day, the Jewish leaders and, and those aligned with them were indignant that Paul would accept Gentiles and that he would teach that God would accept Gentile. If that was a part of the message, if that was a condition of Jesus, then their answer was no. They would not accept Jesus. They would not follow Jesus. They wanted the exclusivity of their Jewish identity more than they wanted Jesus. They made their choice. You cannot cling to your old ways and follow Jesus. You cannot cling to the ways of the world and follow Jesus. When, when Jesus called his first disciples, we see this pattern. He called Peter and Andrew, follow me. And the Bible says at once they left their nets and they followed him. They, they left that activity that defined them. They, they were fishermen. This is how men define themselves, by what they do. They left their livelihood behind. They put their future in Jesus' hands. They, they left their nets and they followed him. In the next verse, James and John are called, and immediately they left their boat, they left their father, and they followed Jesus. This is what's required. We're going to, to follow Jesus. We've got to be willing to, to relinquish all of the things that we have a grip, a, a grasp of. We've, we've got to let them go. We've got to let the old ways go. We've certainly got to let the ways of the world go. So Paul and Barnabas embraced God's purpose, that, that those who knew God would be light to those who do not. When the Gentiles heard what Paul said, they, they were accepted by God through 
Jesus, the scripture says, they honored the word of the Lord and those who were appointed for eternal life believed. And again, this phrase acknowledges that God is the one who knows the hearts of people. Many that day appeared to honor God. The ones who were true and sincere in their fellowship of Jesus were chosen by God or appointed for eternal life. You see, it's always God who determines who has salvation and who does not. The Jewish religious leaders continued to make trouble for Paul and, and Barnabas, and they had to leave Pisidian Antioch. But the, the first church here in, in chapter 13 of Acts has been planted in Galatia. And as a result of the message of Paul to these Christians here at Pisidian Antioch, the the good news of Jesus spread throughout the, the region. Luke records that Paul and Barnabas left for Iconium, shaking the dust from their feet, it says, a sign that they were not responsible for the rejection of the message of Jesus by the Jews. And verse 52 says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They knew the fullness of life that comes from the Spirit of God, because they had chosen to abandon their old ways. They had chosen to let go of the ways of the world and to follow Jesus. And, and this is the call of Christ. This is the invitation of Jesus. Follow me. This is the decision with which we are confronted to, to choose to, to stay where we are or to let go of that to which we cling and follow Jesus. It's a choice. It's a choice. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it's this choice that informs every other choice that we make. And if we fail to make this choice, then the other choices that we make will be choices that are made principally in our own best self-interest. They won't be choices that have Jesus at the center of them, choices that honor God. And so once again today, I, I said we, we make a thousand choices Every day, from the time we get up until the time that we go to bed, you have choices yet to make today. But you have a choice that you need to make right now, whether you are a believer or a non-believer, because believers can choose to go their own way as long as we reside in this world, and, and we do throughout the course of our day. I can assure you, I can think back to yesterday and in my interaction with the kids. And there were moments in which I failed to understand childishness completely. And I went my own way. I just wanted their behaviors to conform to what was acceptable to me. And I was impatient with them because I was making it all about me. That's what we have this tendency to make life all about us in small ways and in large ways. But Jesus is at the center of these choices, if we choose for Jesus and we let him inform the other choices that we make, then we'll make choices that honor God. Let me ask you to stand, please. You have a choice to make right now, everybody here. Will you choose for Jesus? Will you choose to follow Jesus? Will you choose to let the Holy Spirit of God inform the other choices you make in your life? What will your choice be today? I'm, I'm, I'll be right here at the front. If you would choose for the first time for Jesus today, I'd, I'd love to pray with you. It'd be a, 
be a great day. This this could be your day of salvation. Great day for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And for the rest of you, you've already done that. You've already made that decision. You know the truth of what I just said. That we've, we, there's this pull, there's this tug of the world back to, to go our own way, do our own thing, put ourselves at the, the center of the universe, make it all about us. And God calls us back. Your, your life is not supposed to be all about you. Your life is supposed to be all about me and honoring me. And is God speaking to you right now, calling you back? Put me at the center of your life. Choose for me today. What will your choice be right now as God speaks to you? You respond to him.